Welcome back to another episode of the Arcade Age podcast. This week we'll be talking about Pac-Man, the 1980 maze arcade action game uh, that really revolutionized the U.S. and international markets. I'm Chris. Hello, I'm Jake. Uh, it's Zach here. Seamus here. So, development oh, that for... Was, that was fucking awful. <laughs> I know. <That> <laughs> <fucking> <laughs> <awful>. Do it again. <laughs> Well, okay. No, you did like yeah, the same. 20 second part. I'm Chris. My I'm name is Chris Horton. Yeah, I'm one of the hosts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would like to introduce, uh, start, you know, blah, blah, and then we'll just go. Should, should we introduce each other ourselves? This is like episode eight. I know. No, you could just like, uh, this no, is Chris you, you here. We have a couple like people. A okay. Hello. All right. All right. Salutations. Yeah. Start over. That was awful. <laughs> we have the common faces here today. What? The usual people. Silence. Quiet on the set. Oh, talking about quiet on the set. Make sure the phones aren't on vibrate. Silent. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Arcade Age podcast. This week we'll be talking about Pac-Man, the 1980 maze action arcade video game developed by Namco, which helped to revolutionize both the domestic and international arcade industry. I'm your host, Chris, and with me I have Seamus. Hey, guys. Jake. Sup. And Zach. How's it going, everybody? All right, let's get started. So director of Pac-Man, Toru Iwatani, uh, worked with a nine-man team, and he wanted to develop a game that would appeal to women as well as men, and he really wanted to bring kind of everybody into the arcade. Most video games at the time, especially most arcade games, uh, had themes of war and sports, and they were usually uh, about shooting or something, some variation of that. So Iwatani really wanted to kind of bring uh, women and also kids and the family into kind of the arcades and make it family friendly and happy and you know sort of open to everybody I think yeah because at that time I mean you know most games are about war or destruction whatever and also another you know sign of the times as far as arcades go is that arcades are always considered this very very seedy like underbelly like gross place that people hang out in there's illegal stuff going on they're filled with smoke there's drug use there's drinking um specifically pinball at that time and obviously well before that time is associated with the mob so illegal activities you know racketeering things of that nature so he's got this brilliant idea right to make something accessible to everybody so the arcade so he's thinking in 1980 at that time he wants to make the arcade what it has become right now in the United States, which is basically, you know, a redemption center where you can just go with your kids and hang out and chill out. And it's just like a family fun entertainment center. You know, um, he's thinking about that in 1980. As opposed to kind of a gambling den sort of idea that it might have had before. Exactly. Oh, so the perfect timing as well, 1980 rolls around and we're trying to, you know, there's always those like little events that we have with specific time like frames. And now we're beginning 1980 with trying to make it a family friendly location for the arcade. Sure. And I mean, that begins sort of the cycle that we talked a little bit about in a previous episode where you have the sort of anti-drug stuff that comes in, which is obviously later in the 80s, but sort of begins this changeover from a kind of, like I said, gambling CD kind of den of debauchery to a place of family-friendly entertainment. Right. So Pac-Man is, of course, 
a widespread critical and commercial success. It's probably uh, one of the most recognized arcade games. It's one of the most recognized video games. Uh, it generates something like $14 billion in revenue and 43 million units in sales. That's combined uh, up to today. But uh, it just shows that it has this enduring legacy that, again, continues on to this day. Again, it's probably the most recognizable video game character, maybe aside from Mario, um, but it would probably be close. Yeah, and at the time, uh, they didn't think it was going to be that successful in you know, stateside North America. They don't release it in North America or worldwide till December of 1980. So it really doesn't really start taking off until, you know, January, February, 81. It was something like, I think they were like, they were so down on this game because at the 1980 uh, American Amusements Association, I believe, uh, show where all the new arcades came out, Pac-Man and Rally X were displayed there. And most people said Rally X was going to be the big game for that that coming year for 81 and both of those games didn't get that much attention. Rally X did not get much, much attention. Neither did Pac-Man. So they were kind of going into it saying, all right, it'll be good, but it's not going to be massive. And they actually went to Atari first. Uh, they went to Atari first and offered it to Atari, both Rally X and Pac-Man. And, Atari in their not so infinite wisdom at that time said pass they're going to pass on Pac-Man and Rally X right so Bally Midway North America decides oh we'll, we'll give it a try but they still didn't even think it was going to be that big so it was something like they had like 5,000 units coming to North America for release and the fir in the first year they literally sold 100,000 freaking cabinets in the United States 95,000 cabinets over their first order. So that just shows you just within the first year, you know, starting in 81, it just, it just blows up. And do we have like a rough estimate of how much these cabinets would cost per cab? I mean, probably at that time you're looking at 2,500 to $3,000 a cabinet. I mean, it was always roughly about that for a brand new arcade game off the line, you know, a basic arcade game off the line. Mm -hmm. You also have to realize that the developer is using kind of like this newfound technology with the RGB monitor. You know, previously you wanted color out of a monitor. Space Invaders, when it became Space Invaders Deluxe, you guys know our Space Invaders Deluxe up there. That's just like a sheet of like, it's like a gel sheet on the screen to yeah, create like color. A, like overlay, yeah. Right, it's just an overlay, yeah. you know? So here you have this color screen. So now you've got colored sprites that are these brilliant, gorgeous pastels. And um, that's going to attract all players, as well as the game being developed the way it is, being a, being a maze game, being very, very, it's not a, it's like, it's not a war game. Yeah. You know? So it was distributed in the U.S. by Bally Midway, but it's developed in Japan um, by Namco. Now we know them as Bandai Namco, but back then it was just Namco as a single company. Um, and I, I think this, well, I guess Space Invaders would predate this, but I think this sort of marks one of the beginning points of the Japanese video game industry really making its name in America. And like I said, Space Invaders is, is an exception to that, but I, I think this is definitely one of the earlier 
examples. And obviously later we'll get into now, especially where two out of the three major gaming companies are, are out of Japan. But, right. um, you know, I, I think this is sort of one of those early points where the entry is really important. Oh, definitely. And I think that because it was so successful just within the first year, that success carries into the second year and, th you know, through 81, 82, into basically early 83. Um, I have numbers written down somewhere in terms of what it ends up selling and moving. But it's also the first game to create this action mascot you know, with Pac-Man. Um, so that's a revolutionary idea as well. An interesting thing about it, too, the name Pac-Man, I think in Japan it was Puck-Man, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And for distribution in North America, they were weary of the idea of uh, vandalism of the name of the game on the marquee, that you could change the P to an F, and then you would have Fuck-Man. Uh. Right. Yeah. So then they they dropped the UCK and went with AC for Pac-Man. But it is it's the it's it's the first it is the first mascot. And that's what makes it so revolutionary, because then it becomes it literally takes North America by storm. Literally, it just blows up everything and changes the entire face of the arcade. Yeah, it's like the first mascot of gaming I'm trying to think prior mm -hmm. to 1980, what would be a mascot? You only have certain games where there's no mascot required. Try to think of a mascot for Pong. It's going to be a paddle stick. You know, there's nothing that could really relate to that type of criteria compared to Pac-Man. Yeah, before that, you don't really have, again, characters, like almost like a cartoon character. Instead, yeah. you have um, people, either, you know, just soldiers with guns or something like that, or just sort of inanimate objects like a spaceship or, a, like you said, a, a Pong paddle. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> development of the character itself is is interesting you know how he creates pac-man a lot of people kind of go with the urban myth whatever that developer was sitting down and eating a pizza and he took a slice of pizza out and then he's like oh that's how i designed you know pac-man whatever and that's only partially true it's actually probably not even true at all you know, um, I think it's, I don't know, Chris, what, what is it? So in a 1986 interview, Iwatani apparently said that it was about half true. So that was an inspiration for Pac-Man, but it was also uh, developed by using and sort of changing and modifying the Japanese character Kuichi, which I think means mouth. Or yeah, okay. it does mean mouth. Okay. Um, so that's part of it. Because, I mean, it also makes sense, the mouth and the eating. But the right. food also goes into it too because yeah of course what he does is eats <laughs> but it's 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 such a simple character song when you think of it but then i mean i can remember as a kid very young and even 1982 or 1983 everything having pac-man on it board games stickers uh you know not just the home port games or what literal board games stickers bicycles he had a cereal and he had a cartoon series that was like the number one car Saturday morning cartoon for like the year it was released. It, it's, wow. That's what we mean by Pac-Mania. You know, when we talk about Pac-Mania, Bruckner and Garcia have a number one hit with, you know, Pac-Man Fever record. They sell a million records based on this like really just kind of gammy ass 
you know, a song about Pac-Man, you know, I mean, it's a great song, but it's also not a great song. You know, it's like, it's also really, really cheesy. So it's this like real cheese fest of a song, but they sell a million records and they're a bunch of nobodies, you know, and they, they strike it rich off of Pac-Man. It makes sense that like the creation of the Pac-Man itself is not a slice of pizza that was taken out. Cause like, you know, it's a Japanese creator. You don't have Polly and Anthony making Pac-Man. You know, well, Mario. <laughs> that's a fair point. Yeah, that's Mario and Luigi. <laughs> but yeah, well, I was just gonna say that if anyone's interested, look up like videos of people playing the Pac-Man board game. It's the weirdest game I've Is ever it? seen. I, yeah. I've never, I've, I've never seen it. it. Yeah, there's videos online of people playing it. It's really strange. Um, but anyway, so. Okay, so this is something actually that we should talk about is one of the big sort of draws with Pac-Man are the colors. And the colors sort of come to kind of a technical point where uh, Namco kind of, I guess, develops this way of doing colors, uh, which they had used in Galaxian. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but they actually, I guess they develop it further and use it into, into this game. And, you know, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about it is your main character is this bright, vibrant yellow, and you have reds and blues and orange and all of that. And, you know, this is Miss Pac-Man, which is later, but you have the cherries marching across the screen, yeah. this bright red. So I, I think that definitely plays into this. And if we think about attraction. it from stepping into an arcade standpoint from between 1979 then to 1980, right, nothing like that was ever seen before. Right. So automatically it's turning people on right away. They're like, what the, is this color? This isn't an overlay. This is a color monitor. Like, how are you getting these colors? Mm. Never mind the fact that the, the game mechanics are so simple. There's no buttons. It's a joystick. Yeah. That's it. It's a maze chase game. It's simple in its construction and design. But with the use of the new technology at that point in time, no one's ever seen anything like that. It's the perfect mashup of like what you need for a 1980s game. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's tricky, but it's easy to pick up. Well, the colors sets, are beautiful. It sets the tone for, for 1980s arcades because yeah. now everything after that has to be bright, vibrant color with this beautiful, unique side art on, on, on the sides of it, whatever. You know, you have beautiful art on the front kick plate. You have this really kind of cool, you know, interesting for the time obscure uh marquee you know with the characters on and the ghosts are on it whatever yeah. um it's mind-blowing when when you compare it to what had been previously released mm. you know our pac-man cabinet in the exhibit i think i got it from maryland and i got it in rough shape it's always been in rough shape but the side of it so if you're facing the cabinet you're standing at our cabinet right and you're playing our cabinet the left hand side of it the side art right there's like this real patinaed look to it in a certain part of the cabinet up high right on the side art it's all worn away and worn away and worn away and you know, again, kind of going back to when we first got that cabinet six or seven years ago, it came up from Maryland. And uh, 
remember the time, again, Bill Herring saying, well, we could get new side art for it and put new side art on it, even though it's the original, like, painted, kind of, like, cool, decrepit-looking side art, whatever. But again, I was just kind of, like, I argued back and said, well, no, because it's all original, number one. Yeah, it's cracking, it's fading, whatever. But this certain part of where the cabinet is on the left-hand side, like I'm, like I'm telling you guys, it's so worn away because of people who are right-handed playing the game one-handed. There was no buttons. You have to play the game two-handed. So where are they putting their other hand? They're putting their other hand on the side of the cabinet just hanging out. <laughs> so that's worn away from hundreds and hundreds of people's le- left hand being on that cabinet. Wow. So that cabinet is so loved and was so appreciated, right? And it's been played to hell and back. So I wanted to keep that history of that cabinet to me being a piece of art and being a piece of art furniture or just basically art, keep it the way it was, how I got, you know, how we received it, how it came into my possession. Yeah. Um, because that tells the story of something really well-worn like that. It was very, very loved, you know? That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to put it into perspective, what we're talking about with this color and the sort of attractiveness of this cabinet to people and, and kids in particular, but uh, it beat out in 1979 Asteroids as the best-selling game. So before that, oh, wow. it was Asteroids. Wow, yeah. And, you know, you compare Asteroids a year earlier um, to this game, and, I mean, there's really, there's no comparison in terms of there's no vibrancy comparison. and attractive, no. you know. Getting away from the black and white. Yeah, I mean, right. even with the black right. and white vector, it's beautiful, but yeah. it's like I said, you know, Chris just kind of proved it. Like, if it beats out Asteroids, that just shows you that no one's ever seen anything like this, so I'm going to put my quarters in it, you yeah. know? you're welcome to. And, and it's, some, it's some atrocious figure of, I think, I think it actually beat out, it made more money. And guys, this is based on quarters, mind <laughs> you, okay? It was a quarter to play that game, okay? It grossed more money. It grossed over a billion dollars. It grossed more money than the first Star Wars grossed that year. Yeah. Wow. Star Wars grossed like a billion and whatever, and like Pac-Man grossed one point something billion That's the first year it was released. Okay, in, in That's in quarters. <laughs> For, 25 yeah. cents. That's insane. I don't know what a movie cost then. I have no idea. Maybe a dollar, two dollars, really, but you're talking in a, qu- a quarter. That's insane. That's wow. insane. 25 cents a play. Yeah, exactly. So, that I mean, that again just shows. And this is in its first year. So first just year. imagine... Uh, the next year, of course, and then, uh, I mean, throughout time, because it's still a popular game. It's still available on every console. It is, yeah, you know? it is. Um, and never I mind all a, the sequels and everything else. Of I mean, course. some people say that uh, even when Miss Pac-Man came out soon afterwards, that even Miss Pac-Man is a better game, you know? And I, and I, and I actually see it with people playing between our Pac-Man cabinet and our Miss Pac-Man cabinet. People are more inclined to go to Miss Pac-Man, which That's I funny. always found interesting. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's, it's a faster game. Yeah. It is a faster game, yeah. yeah I, I see myself. Like maybe three times as fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see myself favoring Miss Pac-Man as well. Yep. It's quicker. Yeah, I never really paid attention to that until now that you mm-hmm. mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, question. Does Ms. Pac-Man, because we'll talk about, there's one kind of main glitch I think that everybody knows with Pac-Man, or a lot of people do, is that after the, it's level 256, because you can keep playing the game and it just keeps resetting. Yeah. Up until level 256. Mm -hmm. And then it glitches out. Kill screen. You finish that level 256, which is sort of glitched out, but you can finish it and then the game just crashes. Yep. And it reboots. Yes. um, Because of, uh, it's an energy overflow because 256 is the highest you can count in hexadecimal. So okay. it counts to 256, okay. then it tries to count plus one, and then it just crashes because oh, it gets right. to zero. Okay. Um, does Ms. Pac-Man fix any of that stuff? Do you know? I actually don't know. Okay. I should probably look we that up. We might have to look that up then. I should probably look that up. Going does back to level 256, though, I mean, getting to 256 in general is yeah. astounding. I mean, I can get to like level three, and then that's about it for me. How about you, Jake? Oh, I mean, I'm not the best at uh, at Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man, I definitely rip a little bit. I can get up there, I'll play <laughs> it for like a good 30 minutes. Yeah. But like even 30 minutes, man, you're at most like 10 levels in. Yeah. It's getting yeah. like 256. Yeah. Well, I, like I've only played uh, like like past level 256 from like plug and play games. They'll yeah. have like a specific modded version where so it'll right just to be two- level 256. <laughs> right. Yeah. So when you beat it, it just gets glitched out and it is ridiculous. <laughs> Apparently, Miss Pac-Man has a series of kill screens. Okay. At various different levels, hmm. uh, levels like 134 to like 141, all seem to have uh, pretty bad glitch screens on them. Hmm. But uh, of course, I've never gotten anywhere near that high. Um, I don't think many people have. Yeah, I mean, I probably play Miss Pac-Man for 20 minutes. Same thing with Pac-Man, um, and I've got I've got my fill, but. Pac-Man, when I was a kid, for me, it wasn't about playing in the arcade. For me, like I said, I mean, it was on every lunchbox in, in my grade school. It was freaking everywhere, man. You had cereal. You had the cartoon, you know. And then, of course, you have the uh, the ever-so-popular uh, Atari 2600 port. When Atari <laughs> was floundering, they were like, well, we got to get, you know, they obviously realized their mistake at the at the American Amusements show, right, yeah. by not taking the arcade. So they wanted to get the license for um, Pac-Man for their home console. And that was a very, very rushed project. So it's probably one of the shittiest versions of it of all time. Literally the shittiest, but I still think they ended up selling... Oh, I think it was the best-selling yeah, game they, on the system. They sold, what, know, 8 million copies or something like that? No, as yeah. bad of a game as it and is. And it's shit. It's yeah, absolute it, it, shit. It, it, look, it looks like shit. It plays Pac-Man like shit. It's garbage. It's not even a fucking circle. Yeah, it's not. It's a fucking it's a square. Box. Yeah, it's a box. <laughs> so, like, yeah. yeah. And there's like, dashes instead of pellets. It's <laughs> yeah. it's garbage. And yeah. the yeah, ghosts move, like, terribly. They barely follow you. But, you know, it it does the job <laughs> as good as it can get. I mean, it's better than like a, like a tiger electronic uh, handheld right. game. Right. You know, the terrible plays, LCD ones, yeah, which they were. Like, but more importantly, I think that as shitty of the game, like as it was, it pushed Pac-Man even more. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely Whatever. did. It definitely did. It definitely, it definitely, you know, engaged, you know, 8 million people who bought it, even though I would say, say probably half of them or three quarters of those people who bought it and brought it home and, Put in a 2600, regretted it immediately. Um, I think it was one of the games I had from my 2600, but I never played it because it was crap. Even at that age, I was like, this is this is garbage. I think I stuck with Battlezone with my Atari 2600 as opposed to Pac-Man. But um, it also, that 
8 million copies of that sold. Yes, it boosts Atari, but also it fast tracks to what we call Atari shock or the video game crash of 1983 because it just perpetuates what's going on in the video game industry of we're going to pump out however many games possible we can. Doesn't matter quality. They can be absolute garbage. And then we get to, uh, we get to ET, which is blamed for the, the giant crash, which we'll address in an episode, you know, later on down the line. But, it's definitely that, and people don't recognize it enough, but it is definitely that 8 million copies of Pac-Man on Atari 2600 that's sold that definitely adds, promotes, and I think historically is massively responsible for, for the video game crash in, in 83 that we've seen in a couple of years' time. You know, the golden age of arcades, you know, most people... Uh, I'd say a lot of regular people might think it's from 1980 until 1988 or whatever, but really it's a lot smaller than that. Probably like 80 to 82 is the golden age of arcades. Mm. Uh, and that's it. But yes, Pac-Man because of Atari leads to the demise of, of video gaming overall. And let alone, the, let alone the crash, um, it just goes to show how influential the game was in general, that people were probably willing to buy the system even if they didn't have it just to get Pac-Man and yes. play it at their home. I do think that they ended up, I believe Atari ended up, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, I don't know, but I believe Atari ended up making it to Pac-In. I, I would imagine. I think they yeah. made it to Pac-In with 2600 mm-hmm. yeah. in order to sell more units yeah. of, of the actual console. Yeah, so regardless you know? of them being literally a minute late and a dollar short to yeah. get it to begin with, they were still at least able to make a pretty good earning from the game alone yes. regardless of how bad it was. And at that time, Atari is is not going with the Nintendo formula that we see later in 85, 86, 87, mm. which is where Nintendo... And then Sega Genesis and other ones got it right. So what Atari is doing by packing the game in with the 2600 is they're trying to make money off the hardware. Okay. Which is not, which is a proven, an unsuccessful formula time again, time and time again in video gaming and with video game companies. It's proven formula fail. And what did it do? It failed mm, right. because people would buy the console with the Pac-Man, with the Pac-Man, you know, stacked into it. They thought they were moving consoles, but the net money on the console is less than it is on software, on good gaming. Yeah. Right. You know, so even to this day, okay, your PS5. You're going out and spending what are those things running five six hundred bucks now yeah, five hundred bucks right five hundred bucks whatever, so Sony's not making a lot on that five hundred dollar sale. Mm. They're making their money on licensing for call the next Call of Duty game, yeah. where they're going to sell that game for sixty dollars, but Sony's going to get a cut of that of every single. Yeah, with the contracts game. they have with the developers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that, you know, we'll get into that with Nintendo, but Nintendo is the one who's responsible for doing that. Right. You know, and saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to make the money off the hardware. We're going to make the money off the software. Yeah. 
they also, because this is one of the things about the Atari Pac-Man that's probably the most, it's one of those games that I feel like if you have a collection of Atari 2600 games, you just end up with Pac-Man almost by accident. Everybody has one if you have more than like two 2600 games. But the worst part is Ms. Pac-Man on the 2600 is a good game. So it's not that the 2600 was too limited or anything like that. Pac-Man is just poorly made. Because the Ms. Pac-Man port, which is a lot rarer, it's a lot harder to find, but it's a legitimately good port. Um, I never even knew that they ported it over. I, I I've never even played it. Mm. Yeah, so that's look, look up videos or something like that because it's legitimately a good game. Wow. But I mean, the reason why Pac-Man is so poor is because it's really ridiculously rushed to production. Right. So that's why you have just the graphics are just absolutely. They're just cra- it's just it's literally the, some of the worst. I agree. It might be one of the worst games I've ever played in my <laughs> life. And so to take to take this um, arcade success story, right? To take this massive thing, right? And then port it to such a crappy port. To something like Now that. the consumer feels They feel what? cheated. Yeah. Right. So then the, so those 8 million people who buy the Atari 2600 console to get the Pac-Man pack in or... Or they went out and they bought Pac-Man was released, um, you know, in the box. At that time, I think Atari games are still probably running forty or fifty bucks. Mm. You know, I think they're they're pretty expensive even in the eighties. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I can I can remember the prices being pretty high in a Toys R Us. And my parents being like, "Slow down there, kiddo." You know, well, you're, the, gonna get, you're gonna get one new game a year for Christ's sakes. You know, the console is the equivalent today if you adjust it of about eight hundred dollars. Yeah. I believe, so, it. Oh. I believe it. Yeah. It's I believe wow. it. Yeah. pretty insane. It's absurd. Yeah, the original VCS. Yes, yeah. I believe that. I the, believe that. The original launch price. Once yeah. again, that makes perfect sense why, you know, going down the line, you see these companies like Nintendo and Sega making a killing right. when they sign these gaming developers right. to make the games and they're making the money off the software, not just the hardware. Yeah. Another little interesting tidbit that I've always kind of followed around is I, I had gotten this... Uh, this book years ago when I was developing the exhibit and kind of doing my research and stuff like that. And it's, it's a book called Zap. It's an old book about, uh, you know, history of video games or whatever up at that point of Atari and things of that nature. It's a cool book. You know, I found it, I think, online. It's a rare book to come across. This for me. And in the forward, it talks about this. It's a blurb about this very interesting happening around Pac-Man. For me, I look at it. I look at it as it's the first known case of something really bad and really going wrong around an arcade video game, and especially around something so pure as as Pac-Man. So, and it happened in our backyard here in New York, which is funny, which is kind of crazy. So, it's June 1982. Okay, Kings Park, Long Island. There's a bar on Main Street called Heidi's Inn. Pretty sure it's not there anymore. Pretty sure it's probably a different bar now. I don't know what bar it is. Probably very interesting to find out what bar it is now or what has taken its place. But they've got a Pac-Man machine in the bar. Pretty much like I'm sure every other bar, delicatessen, restaurant, anything, will have a Pac-Man at that time or some sort of arcade game at that time, right? And so there's this guy in there. His name is Glenn Matta, and he's 25 years old. 
and he's from the area and he's hanging out in the pub in, in Kings Park and whatever happened, he gets into an altercation with a woman over who has the next game of Pac-Man. You know, like who's got next on the Pac-Man machine. And there's an altercation, there's a fight, whatever. He gets kicked out by the bouncer, okay? He goes back to his home and he gets a rifle and then he convinces his 22-year-old girlfriend, girl named, I believe, Patricia Delaquila, under the threat of he's going to beat her up and he's going to give her a beating to drive him back to the bar that night. So what he does is he threatens his girlfriend with a beating if she doesn't drive him back to the, to the bar in Kings Park on Main Street. So she drives him back there, you know, under duress, apparently. And then he fires six shots with his rifle into the bar randomly. And he, he's, one of the bullets strikes this 18-year-old kid named Paul Nuzzi and kills him in the bar. And Paul Nuzzi hadn't even been in the bar at the time that this guy, Glenn Matta, was, was kicked out. He came in afterwards. So he's just standing around. Maybe he's having a beer. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's waiting for a game of Pac-Man. Maybe he's not. And um, he gets killed. And I think then, fast forward a year later, the trial and everything, and the judge dismisses the charge against Patricia, the girlfriend, but he, sent, he sentences uh, Matta to 15 years to life. And for me, from a historical standpoint, this is like the first thing that I can come up with or see or recognize as violence revolving around video games, like a violent happening or a violent thing being, being you know, quote unquote caused yeah, by a video game. Definitely big right? air quotes around cause. Right. Big, big goddamn air quotes around cause. So Pac-Man causes this guy to, to kill indiscriminately this young man hanging out in a bar. Um, so that's what made me want to dive through the story even even more so to really kind of find out what what happened but that story kind of sends shockwaves across the nation and only adds to this thought of the arcade being the seedy disgusting teenage delinquent you know uh den of delinquency gross place that you wouldn't have your you wouldn't have your kids in because they're going to get shot or they're going to do drugs they're going to be smoking pot or they're going to be drinking whatever or they're going to get into they're going to get into some some bad shit this is that case that kind of fast forwards and pushes all that you know i was wondering so what do you recall what year this is this is uh 1982 82 June okay. of 1982 is when he shoots into the bar so I'm I think it was I think it was specifically I think it was like June sixth or seventh or eighth okay. around there. And then the, um, the trial was in eighty three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm asking because and I, and I looked it up. It's also nineteen eighty two. Um, the the berserk death, the death associated with the video game oh. berserk, which wasn't a murder or anything. It right. was a the guy had a heart attack playing. Right. Exactly. Um, but similar exact same year. I don't know. 
yeah what month or whatever but um you know kind kind of interesting that it's both yeah you have these weird deaths you know you have a death that becomes essentially that death with berserk becomes this urban legend right, right yeah and then what comes out of that urban legend is the urban legend of polybius right sure which doesn't exist at all mk ultras it's the video game that it's the video game that kills if you play it right that was that game never existed somebody had to make that game years later right you know somebody literally had to make that game years later and then put it on a drive or put it on a a, a thing and then you have people who make polybius cabinets now just as just because it's chic okay fine cool whatever <laughs> but you know the berserk urban legend definitely takes off sure right the pac-man murder the pac-man killing also takes off because parents are now scared to death of letting their kids go into arcades and now could you have it happen around a more family-friendly game than pac-man no you can't so now now pac-man is deemed not uh, yeah. even safe, right? Like, think about the psychology around that. Yeah, yeah that's you know? the interesting thing because Berserk is kind of a you know spooky game anyway. Oh, it's sure. kind of scary yeah, and yeah, yeah. well, and also uh, you have Evil Auto talking to you in that yeah. creepy robot yeah, it voice. Makes so sense. right, it's kind of a creepy game to begin with. But mm. you know, Pac Man to be associated with murder and yeah. and violence—it's the complete opposite of what right. you would expect. Yeah, exactly. So once as that becomes a culprit, then it really starts to change the environment right. around gaming. Yeah, because it could—it really could have like you know a plus or a minus effect where you're not going to have families like letting their kids play, but now it might also bring in a whole new crowd of people that are like late teens or you know in their in their twenties. Yeah, edgy kids. Wanna, you know? Yeah, of course, <laughs> that would want to go to the arcade now because of everything that's surrounding the so-called environment of right. the arcade. My parents hated when we when we used to go to the arcade. They hated it. Wow. But again, also, they allowed it. They couldn't stop it. They weren't going to stop it. I mean, we were all. We were all what's considered, you know, at that time, I don't even think you have them anymore, but we were latchkey kids. So we had a key to our own house and we came and went as we want. Our parents were at work, you know, summer vacation, we were out all day. It didn't matter where we went. There wasn't, there was no, there was no, there was no online, right? There's no, there's no www.jack shit at that time, right? So that fear of that like online predatory stuff is not there. The online bullying stuff is not there. You know, you're talking the early 80s. The first time I can recall any sort of warning happening in my life as a child is I was in grade school and they sent a letter home with us of this, you know, creepy guy, stereotypical creepy guy in a van who was pulling up to grade school students in the neighborhood and trying to get them to get in the van. That's the first thing I can even recall. And even at that time, parents were not, I'm not going to say they weren't concerned, but if parents, if my parents said, or if the teacher said, or if the school said, hey, look out for this guy in the creepy freaking van and stay the hell away from him, guess what? We're going to do that. We're not going to go near that freaking guy. Or if we see something, we're going to say something, yeah. you know, we're going to walk the other way. We're going to, we're going to avoid it. So, uh, it's a different time. It's a different feeling. So even though they hated us being in arcades, 
maybe my parents felt like we were going to make the right decision and not get involved in whatever they considered arcade culture was at that time. Mm -hmm. Arcade culture being in massive air quotes at that time. Um, But yeah, definitely an interesting, an interesting time to have lived in with the arcade, but a lot of that anti-arcade, anti-video game sentiment comes out of this Pac-Man murder and, and the urban legend of Berserk. Yeah. Yeah. And Seamus, you could speak for yourself, uh, of course, because you you know you were the only one that could have has lived this experience. But with the parents, you could say that they kind of trusted in you on what you were doing because at the time there was less distractions for children. You know, you're not going to be distracted by looking at your phone. You you know you're you're around a bunch of friends, and they had that trust you're going to do the right thing. And also, you had all that time in the world to be able to even go there. So there was no way that they could stop you from even going to the arcade. The 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 best thing I can liken it to Zach is. If you ever seen E.T. and like the kids just out on their dirt bikes all day long and they just, you know, kind of screw off in the morning and they're gone. Their parents are like, okay, whatever. They're just out on their bikes on the dirt tracks and whatever they're going. That's literally what my life was as a kid between the ages of like six and and 12 or 13 and even into my teens, whatever. Like we go out on our bike at six or seven years old. We'd be pretty far from home. Yeah. Riding on the streets. But it just, yeah, there was less distractions. There was no online. Um, I'm not sure what made a different time or what made our parents trust us with the keys to kind of come and go as we please. And you listen, man, when we came home from school at 3 o'clock, 3.30, my parents weren't anywhere near close to being home. So... We were in the house by ourselves for another couple hours until my parents arrived home and mom was like, all right, let's fix some dinner. And dad was cleaning up or whatever the hell was going on. But that was perfectly normal. I don't think now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of a parent now who would leave their seven or eight year old home alone after school for two or three hours. I don't know if that would happen. It's right not now. even really allowed. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, is that, is that even really. freaking allowed? Like, well, is it even a freaking thing? I mean, well, it, it's definitely allowed. I mean, like, 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 I definitely was was more similar to that kind of situation when I was growing up. Then again, that it was like, let's see, like 16, 17 years ago, I'd be six years old. So, like, that that's still a long time ago. But I feel like now it, they just don't want to leave their kids... I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. It's like I think the news, like and the internet being so popular that any possible story, right? Yeah. Like like any story, it could be like barely harmful. Like it could be just like some creepy guy that they've just heard about, right? There's a zillion pictures of that guy on the internet now. Everybody on Facebook in your neighborhood is telling you, "Look, this guy's in your neighborhood. Don't like like let your kids get home and lock them in the door." Right. Yeah. right, right I think yeah. that's more of it because back then. It would have to be something serious for there to be a news like yeah. like in the newspaper article about That's it. True. So I mean, you, yeah. the shit was still going on, but it wasn't as in your face shoved like keep your kids safe. Like it was implied that your kids are going to be safe. Yeah, I think the culture of fear is definitely growing in the country with the news and with the internet. And I think that at, at the time when I was a kid was the boogeyman was real, but I couldn't see him. The boogeyman is still real. But if you're a freaking seven or eight year old kid who's internet savvy, 
guess what? You could see the boogeyman, no freaking problem. Like the boogeyman is really real. Like the boogeyman was real when I was a kid, but like we didn't see him. So it was kind of like, eh, the boogeyman doesn't exist. But nowadays, dude, the boogeyman exists around every freaking corner for these kids. I feel like that's what it is. And I think, and I think that's a lot to do with the internet and the culture of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like imagine like a six or seven year old kid, just I don't know where he'd hear the name of like Jeffrey Dahmer or like like you know these crazy serial yeah. killers. One Google search and then they, they could read for hours about this one guy and all the crazy fucked up shit that he's done. And they know it all, yeah. And they have it all. They have the entire history right there. Boom at their at their fingertips. Yeah. You know right right away. All the gory details, all the grizzly stuff, photographs, all the no, yeah, and all the gross stuff yeah. that you would you would never you wouldn't imagine showing a teenager, never mind a, a, a child of, of that age. You know, that was... So maybe maybe because the internet wasn't a thing, maybe because... Uh, I mean, guys, we... I mean, we, were, we, were, we, weren't, we weren't well off. We were fairly poor when I was growing up, uh, my family. Um, so we didn't have cable the entire time I was growing up. So, you know, regular TV, whatever. So... The advent of cable, 24-hour news network with CNN, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. the, and and all that kind of hyping up. And then the internet, yes, information is power, but also information is detrimental to, to you know, a child's growth, I would say, fear. you know? Yeah, fear, yeah. fear. And it has a good and a negative effect as well. I mean, you know, you can almost guarantee, well, for the most part, you can guarantee that your child wouldn't be safe in today's world at the same time, you're going to be holding on to their hands until they turn 18 years old now. And when you let them go out into the world, you see these tragic events because they never had the opportunity to go out in the world by themselves. Once you leave mommy and daddy, you see these horrible events of what they can get into because they're just left into this open world of freedom and they never were given that before. And they don't, don't know what to do. Yeah, and they were all sheltered as well. Like yeah, exactly. They never got I, to live by themselves. I know who brought brought it up, or Jake, or or Zach brought it up, whatever. But yeah, I mean, going back to this concept of the evil man or the boogeyman, whatever else like that. Like, um, I think it was you that mentioned that, Seamus. But we dismissed <laughs> it. You know what I'm saying? Like, we we just we dismissed it. It wasn't a part. It wasn't a thing in our lives. Like something wrong or something terrible happening to us when we were out as kids at the park or playing stickball at the high school, whatever, that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. I mean, now you got, you got, you know, as far as New York goes and stuff like that and other places around the country, you never, you have, you have kids being randomly shot for no freaking reason, you know? So, um, maybe we're a lot more of a, a violent society as well. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what what the overall answer is. All I know is that very different times and very different parenting skill sets in the eighties than you know in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, I do think that that like violence and stuff, and like you go to the park and you know you're playing stickball and one of your friends goes missing. Shit's been had to have been going on forever. Oh, forever. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt, I just think that news has made it more prevalent where a lot more people know the story. They hear this on a weekly basis that mm-hmm. some kids kidnapped or some person gets shot like on the corner. Mm-hmm. 
they're just used to it like now where it's part of your everyday like thought process where yeah. okay i'm gonna stay away from that street corner past like seven or eight o'clock because last week somebody got shot there mm-hmm. yeah. so you know you live by that corner if you didn't hear the bullet back in the day you were just hoping for the best you were like look i didn't i didn't hear anybody get shot i'm going to the store and you know back to <laughs> you know just back to talking about you know the the pac-man murder and the the berserk death whatever you also have to realize at that time like you know, I had a dig for this story about Pac-Man. You know, I mean, I didn't know it. It was a blurb at the beginning of this book, like I told you guys, and that was it. So at that time, too, with Berserk, with Pac-Man, whatever, then here's the yarn spinning, right? Like here, you know, here's the urban, here's the urban list, myth. Here's the urban legend just springs out of it right away because at that time, there's no source that I can just go type in and get the real story. Yeah. Right. So that just catches, catches like wildfire right? because there's a blurb about it in a newspaper. Yeah. You don't know the whole really full story. Can you jump on the internet and find the real story or find the source and find the origin of the story at that time? No, you can't. You're going by what people are telling you on the street. You're going by what people. Did you hear this? Did you hear that? Did you hear about this? You're going by you know? that or you see at the classic movie scenes where it's like, you know, the 80s and you see a guy going to a library with a lamp on. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's and looking through these old, through the old newspaper papers, clippings. just digging by the old. I mean, yeah. look, as a kid, I knew Even about, that. as a kid, I knew about Berserk and I knew about, right. you don't play Berserk. Because it kills people. <laughs> because yeah. you die. Exactly. It's like, what do you mean you don't play Berserk because you die? Well, it's, it's you know, there's something in the game it's program that it, kills it, you. It actually kills certain people. Yeah. Wow. Dude, I'm seven, eight years old. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to stay the <laughs> fuck away from yeah. Berserk. Not playing Berserk. I'm not playing Berserk. But that's how the urban legend grows. Right, yeah. yeah. Now you Google it and you're like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's yeah, like, and it know, was some guy with a severe BS. heart condition yeah, had a heart attack a heart while attack. playing he probably Berserk. Weighed, he may, maybe he weighed 500 pounds or whatever. Yeah. We don't know. Twinkie cross you know what I'm saying? We, don't, we don't know. We don't know. You know, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. But now you know it's like, oh, it was a pre- pre-existing heart condition. Yeah. The guy just happened to have a heart attack while right. he was playing Berserk. The game didn't kill him, but at that time, and it also fits whatever narrative him. that they're trying to follow to get the yes. kids away from the video games. Yes, yes, it plays right into the hands of the government conspiracy. It plays. Never. <laughs> it plays right into the hands of the uh, your anti-arcade crusade. Yeah, you know your anti-video game crusaders. It's the U.S. first berserk. <laughs> United States versus Pac-Man. Uh, okay, so we've been going for quite a while here. Yes, I, I, I want to say it's been almost uh, an hour and 15 minutes. an hour. It was wow. over an hour. A lot to talk about. So, that's a good one. So, you know, it's, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great game. It's definitely worthy of it in terms of history, but I think it's time to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Thanks, everybody, for listening. We Thanks hope you enjoyed this guys. longer episode, and uh, be sure to check out our other episodes if you like this one. Thank you for tuning in to the Arcade Age Exhibit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with our hosts, Seamus, Zach, Jake, Sean, Chris, and Jose. Tune in next week, and remember, the future is now.